Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody this morning, as always. Uh, we have a special guest with us this morning that's going to be uh, bringing the Word of God to all of us. Uh, he's really, I mean, special guest to all of us, but today he's one of my one of my best friends and like a son to me. I've known uh, Brother Will for, I don't even know how long we go back now, at least six years, right? Yeah, five or six years. He was back here as original member at one time here at 116. And he moved out to Denton, and now he's going to another church out there. But his lovely wife, Abby, and their two sweet little children uh, have been a huge blessing to my family. Um, he's also uh, my fellow street preaching partner, and I've spent years with him on the street uh, preaching the Word of God in the open air. And there's no finer preacher in the open air than Will. Um the guy is just totally on fire, loves Christ, handles the word very well, and handles the world around him very well, too. Watched him mature over the years. And I'm extremely, extremely proud of him and proud to be his to be his friend and proud of the fact that he would come here and share with us this morning. Uh, Will uh, now, got, now has his bachelor's degree uh, in arts uh, in biblical studies at the Master's University. Um, just finished that, and he's a full-time, he's a full-time preacher, uh, evangelist, and I know there will be um, an opportunity as well. Maybe you'll give the link or whatever uh, for those who want to continually give to his ministry. I know he appreciates it. His family appreciates it. Let me just tell you, this guy's got a worth work ethic like no other. Uh, he's out on the streets every single day, uh, pretty much, and. Uh, faithfully preach the word of God in season and out of season, uh, whether it's raining or snowing or whatever, he's out there faithfully preaching the word of God. Uh, so with that being said, Brother Will, why don't you come on up here and preach the word of God to us. We'll wait for the round of applause when you're done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction, Pastor Jeff. Um, honestly, Jeff Rose has really been one of the most influential, if not the most influential person in my life as far as studies and doctrine from topics such as evangelism, apologetics, eschatology. And I'd, I'd say a lot of that is going to come out in this sermon today. Some of the books that he's gifted me, uh, there will be quotes from, and um, it's definitely been a blessing. Uh, he's really been a mentor to me. In my life and it's a joy to be here it's always a joy to preach Christ in every season no matter if it's on the streets or behind the pulpit and 116 will always be a church body that I consider my family and I, I cherish my time being here and I'm thankful that Jeff has trusted me to take the pulpit and make much of Christ today the title for my sermon today is going to be the preeminent Christ and the reason for that is we're going to be working through a passage in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 1.13. If you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles there. And as you turn your Bibles there, it is worth noting before uh, reading this passage um, that this is actually one of Paul's prison epistles. We often think of Philippians as Paul's <coughs> prison epistle because Paul continually makes mention of his imprisonment throughout the letter. But even in this text, when Paul is dealing with the details of the deity of Christ and, um, and his work on the cross to save us from our sins, he's in prison. So during this whole letter, he is imprisoned, and he has 
all of these great details to speak of about who Christ is and what he's done to save him, um, to save Paul from his sins. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 of Colossians 1 tell us that we should, with joy, give thanks to the Father, and we will see why we should give joy to the Father in verse 13. So, let's read our text before us, and then we'll pray for God's guidance. It says, "...who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Because in him all things were created, in the heavens and on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones, whether dominions, whether rulers, whether authorities, all things were created through him and in him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in order that in all things he might be preeminent. Because in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether the things on earth or whether the things in the heavens. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have rescued us from our darkness, from our errors, from our sin, from the things in which we once delighted in, we no longer delight in, but rather we delight in Christ, the one who offers forgiveness for all of our sins, the one who we can have peace through. And I pray today that Christ would be known, that Christ would be exalted, Lord, that for the saints who do know Christ, that we would be encouraged to preach this Christ in every area of life and in every way that we can and apply the word to our own lives. And if there's anyone sitting here who doesn't know you, I pray that they would call upon your name and be made right with you and know that uh, Christ is worthy. He is the creator and that he can uh, save them to the uttermost. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So in verse 13, we read of God rescuing us from the authority of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of the son of his love. The person of the Holy Trinity that is responsible for this is the Father. It is He who is doing this action of rescuing. He is responsible for this. We were all once ensnared in our darkness. We go from being characterized by darkness to being characterized as members of the kingdom of the beloved Son. The Greek word for rescue is the word ruamai. This word means to drag out of danger, to rescue, save, to be rescued. Delivered. What we see in this text is clearly the concept of deliverance. The God we serve is omnipotent, and therefore he is able to deliver us from our bondage of sin. We are slaves of sin apart from the work of Christ, and apart from the work of the rescuing Father. We once were in allegiance to Satan and darkness, and now we are in allegiance to Christ, who is the light of the world. In John 8, 12, we read, Then again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. The one following me will certainly not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Christ says, I am the light of the world, he is making a claim to deity because he uses the phrase, I am, ego me" in the Koine Greek, which is what God says his name is when Moses asked God, what is your name when I tell the people the God of your fathers has sent me to you? God's reply is, I am who I am. Or we could translate it, I am the one being from the Septuagint reading, Ego Emi Ha'on. 
Jesus, as the light of the world, fulfills Old Testament prophecies that were promised to come. This light that would come into the world. For example, Isaiah 9-2 promises, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. Jesus Christ is the great light who delivers us from death and darkness. In addition to this glorious truth, we see a promise for those who follow Jesus in John 8, 12, that they will never, never, not even a possibility, walk in darkness. This is the thrust of the Greek text, and it's saying that if we follow Jesus, we will certainly not walk in darkness, and Christ says it's not even a possibility. Now, this isn't saying that there will be no sin in the life of the believer. However, the life of the believer will be ultimately characterized by walking in the light because Christ is the light of the world. The good news in this text is that we get the light of life. Jesus is both the light and the life. And so the good news here is that we get Christ. Our future entails being with our Savior and forsaking the darkness that once so easily ensnared us. We see this truth further established in 1 John 1, 5. Be there for just a moment. We see this clear theme of, of darkness and light in this text. It says, And this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none. So what we see in this text is the apostolic witness, the testimony of the apostles. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. This is the one who was from the beginning, before time even began, before anything was even created. Christ was there. And this one who was from the beginning gave them a message. And the content of that message, when we look at the Greek text, there's a, a preposition here, hati, that we translate as that. And when you see that hati there, it's saying this is the content of the message that you're going to hear. And that content of the message is that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, none. There is no darkness in God. And this is honestly one of the most terrifying truths in all of Scripture, because outside of Christ, we are characterized by darkness. But God has no darkness in him. There's no error. He is majestic. He is pure, and he is holy, and we are not. And this text gives us a further warning. It gives a warning to those who claim to have fellowship with Christ but their lifestyle is completely contrary to what they profess. It says in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. You see, there are those who might profess that they have fellowship with Christ, and yet all of their lives say the exact opposite. This, this word for fellowship, it means to have partnership from the Greek koinonia, and so when we're talking about fellowship, we're talking about having partnership in, in a point in which we all have a common ground. We are partners with Christ. We understand why we are meeting here together. Today we are here because we have fellowship with Christ. But to claim to have fellowship with the one who has no darkness in him and then walk in darkness is to lie and to not practice the truth. You're not even doing the truth. You don't even have the truth in you. But then we have the good news of the gospel, the hope that we have because of Christ's blood. And so we have this if-then statement, but if, if this, then this is what's true of you. Just like the pr previous verse had the same thing going on, these if clear if-then statements. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so we can walk with Christ, the one who is the light of the world. And then we have fellowship. We have that partnership. We have that union together. We have a, a point of unity in which why 
we gather together. And that is all because of His Son. It is all because of Jesus Christ. No matter how much sin you have in your life, you can be cleansed, you can be purified from all of your sin because the blood of Christ is sufficient to save to the uttermost. Going back to verse 13 of Colossians 1, the word for transfer has the concept of removing whole kings and populations and bringing them to another realm. R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary on Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, the word for transferred is used in other places to describe a mighty king picking up whole populations and deporting it to another realm. This has already been accomplished. All believers have been sublimely deported into the kingdom of his beloved son, which at the consummation will be the eternal kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. We are in the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom enveloped in love. For this reason, we give joyous thanksgiving. End quote. Jesus went about proclaiming the kingdom of God in his earthly ministry. But now we see that this kingdom is the kingdom of the son of his love. Therefore, even these earlier verses of Colossians 1 present the reality that Jesus is God. Moving on to verse 14, we see that it is in Jesus that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The concept of redemption means to buy back. In order for someone to be able to buy something back, they must have ownership or previous ownership. You see, because God owns all things, he is able to redeem his people. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God is able to buy back those who are slaves of sin and make them slaves of righteousness. We see the same truth further taught in Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. R.J. Rush Dooney commenting on this text says, To redeem in its basic meaning means to buy back, buy again, or repurchase, and always refers to property which has passed out of the hands of the original owner, whether by sale, by security, or of a loan, and which he buys back under the laws governing such cases. Only the original owner or someone acting on his behalf has a right to redeem property. Thus, Jesus Christ enters history as our next of kin to redeem us from the power of sin and death and restore us to paradise, to the kingdom of God. Our salvation is not merely negative, but positive. Not merely from sin and death, but into righteousness, holiness, knowledge, and dominion in his eternal kingdom, into recreation in his image, and into reestablishment in our callings as kings, priests, and prophets of God, the Almighty. And that's the end of the quote by R.J. Rushduni from Thy Kingdom Come, his studies on Daniel and Revelation. Because Christ has provided this redemption, all our sins are forgiven. In the cross of Christ, past, present, and future sins have been paid for. For everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord, the debt is canceled. This is further established in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, which says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Outside of Christ, we have an insurmountable sin debt standing against us. It is a debt that none of us are able to pay in and of ourselves. We have earned death because of our sins. But in Christ, that debt can be canceled and nailed to the cross. The word for canceling in the Greek is the word exalepho. It means to erase, wipe away, wipe out, blot out, cancel, obliterate. 
If God has saved you, causing you to be born again to a living hope, and declared you righteous by faith in Christ, your record of sin debt has been obliterated because he took it away from your midst, nailing it to the cross. One of my many suggested translations of this text would be, by erasing the record of debt against us with its legal demands, which was opposed to us, and he has taken it away from our midst by nailing it to the cross. Now, if you have not been made right with God, you still have a debt standing against you that your so-called good works can't change. They can't be erased by your good works. But if you would bring your self-righteousness to Christ, He is able to cleanse you of your dirty heart and erase all of your sins. God's new covenant promises, I will put my laws into their minds and upon their hearts I will write them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In Colossians 1.14, we also see that it is in Christ that we see, receive the forgiveness of sins. This text proves the deity of Christ because no one can forgive sins except God alone. Turn your Bibles to Luke 5.17. We'll see this truth taught more clearly. And it happened that one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a stretcher, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down before him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, knowing their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you? Or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and picking up your stretcher, go home. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is a title of deity from Daniel 7.13. What we learn from this text is that the Pharisees knew what Jesus was saying and they had better theology than the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. They understood the claims of Christ, but they rejected the claims as blasphemy. They were right when they said God alone can forgive sins. Jesus can forgive sins because he is God. Which brings us to Colossians 1, 15 through 16. Because in him all things were created, or sorry, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Because in him all things were created in the heavens, and on the earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones, whether dominions, whether rulers, whether authorities, all things were created through him and in him. Jesus is spoken of as the image of the invisible God. The word for image has a variety of meanings. In certain contexts, it could mean that which represents something else in terms of basic forms and features, form, appearance. It could mean an object shaped to resemble the form or appearance of something, likeness or portrait. 
But none of these options fit the context of Colossians 1.15 because Jesus is not merely representing God in form or appearance and he is not resembling the form of an object like a portrait. Christ is the living image of God and has the same form of God. R. Kent Hughes says of this verse, Christ is the image of the invisible God is not just a plaster representation of him, but the revelation of what God is really like. The writer of Hebrews expressed the same thought in very powerful language. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The Greek word translated exact imprint here meant the impress left by a die on a coin or a seal on wax. He is the exact impress of the essence of God. Christ's supremacy and eternity is boldly proclaimed, as Paul says, he is the akon of the invisible God. He is supreme. Jesus is no second-rate emanation from the true God, a Gnostic stepladder in the, in, to the true God. He is God, end quote. <clears throat> this verse also tells us that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. In explaining the Greek word for firstborn, prototokos, Bill Mount says, in biblical culture, the firstborn had higher status and received a greater share of the inheritance. Jesus Christ, as the firstborn of God, is of supreme status and inherits all things. In this text, it is emphasizing preeminence and that Christ is the rightful heir over all creation. In fact, when we come to this verse in the Greek text, we see a genitive of subordination. The genitive case in Greek has a variety of functions, and it often is used to express possession. So phrases like the word of God or the kingdom of God are all examples of genitive nouns. But here it is not functioning in a way to express possession, but rather the genitive noun for the word creation is expressing subordination. So Christ is the firstborn overall creation, and the creation is subordinate to Christ. Christ is preeminent over all creation. The term firstborn is used in Psalm 89, 27 in reference to the coming Messiah. If you would turn your Bibles there, it's a very helpful text to know in dealing with the nature of what it means when we're talking about the firstborn. It says, Psalm 89, 27, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, when we discuss Christ as the firstborn, it means that he is the Messiah, who is the highest of the kings of the earth. Just as Revelation 19:16 says, Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. Moving on to verse 16, I want you to recognize that verses 15 and 16 help in defending the faith against Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and other cults that deny the deity of Christ. Mormons say Jesus is Satan's brother. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Christ is the first created being. This is a helpful text to know for both dialogues and open-air preaching. Paul employs a list of created things and says, whatever created things you can think of, Christ created them. Christ created all things in the heavens and on the earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones, whether dominions, whether rulers, whether authorities, all things were created through him and in him. This text parallels well with John 1.3, which says all things were made, literally came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing was made, literally came into being, which has been made, once again, literally came into being. There is not a single created thing on earth or in the heavens that was not created by Jesus Christ. Jesus did not create himself. Jesus is the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Another helpful point in helping defend the faith against Jehovah's Witnesses is knowing that they have to add words in their translation that are not found anywhere in the Greek text. The Jehovah's Witness Bible is known as the New World Translation. 
It's not even a real translation. They just add stuff and no one knows who did it and they just throw things in there and it's all just a bunch of, it's all a bunch of garbage is what it really is. So they have to add the phrase other four times in their translation of Colossians 1.16. So I want to read this, but this is just a, a, a corruption of the word of God, just so you understand here. It says, because by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth the things visible and the things invisible. No matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things. And by means of him, all other things were made to exist. They have to add words to keep their doctrine. There are two common words for other in the Greek text. There is the word heteros and the word alos. And neither of these words are found in the text. Once again, we see that Jesus is not a created being. Moving on to verse 17. It says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. A few months ago, my brother in Christ, Josh Chavez, and I were talking to some Jehovah's Witnesses at the South Lake Town Square, and one of the ladies said that Jesus was created because of Adam's sin. In this view, not only are they saying that the cross was a plan B, but that Jesus himself was a plan B. However, what we see here is that Jesus is before all things. This verse also destroys the view in Mormonism that says God was once a man on a different planet and became God through exaltation. The truth is, Jesus already existed before time and matter existed. He didn't create the world out of pre-existing matter, but he created the universe out of nothing. The second half of this verse has other important apologetic implications that I think it would be beneficial to consider. We see that Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together. The atheist philosopher David Hume based his whole theory of knowledge on what we see and experience. This view is known as empiricism, which is the theory that all knowledge is derived from sense experience. To summarize Hume's philosophy that led him to skepticism, he said that we cannot assume the future will be like the past because we have never observed the future. We have observed past futures, but not future futures. This is known as Hume's problem of induction. So in this framework of thinking, we cannot be certain that when we play a game of pool tomorrow that a ball striking another ball has any sort of cause and effect relationship. We cannot assume that striking a ball with another ball will have any effect at all. We cannot assume that tomorrow when we wake up, we will not float out of bed and defy gravity. Again, in Hume's framework of thought, we cannot assume that nature will be uniform because of his atheism and consistent empiricism. Everything is just chance acting upon matter. We can have no philosophical justification for knowing anything at all. Now, how does the Christian worldview, and specifically this, work, this verse, answer atheism's problem of assuming uniformity in nature? It's because Jesus holds all things together. And as Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we as Christians can know that nature will be uniform because we know the God who is upholding all things. We do not live in an open, random chance universe where anything and everything is possible. But we live in a universe that is upheld by Christ who upholds and governs all things. We have laws that are objectively true because our God is objectively true and it is within his nature and character to be uniform. We can assume unity, a uniformity in nature because our God is uniform. We have a God of order rather than chaos. And this is the option for all mankind, Christ or chaos. 
Cornelius Van Til sought the goal of an objective, absolutely certain proof for God's existence in his work, Defense of the Faith. In response to Hume's view of skepticism, he says, Our argument as over against this would be that the existence of the God of Christian theism and the conception of his counsel as controlling all things in the universe is the only presupposition which can account for the uniformity of nature which the scientist needs. But the best and only possible proof for the existence of such a God is that his existence is required for the uniformity of nature and for the coherence of all things in the world. Thus, there is absolutely certain proof for the existence of God and the truth of Christian theism. Even non-Christians presuppose its truth while they verbally reject it." End quote. Greg Bonson, commenting on this quote from Van Til, says, Van Til maintains here that the only way to escape Hume's skepticism and to philosophically justify the connections, identity, causality, etc., between separate experiences is to presuppose Christianity as one's worldview. Given the existence of the God revealed in the Bible, there is indeed a uniformity in nature by his sovereign control and trustworthiness. Thus, the personalism of Christian theism is the intellectual precondition for even the impersonal procedures of science itself. That's Greg Bonson in Van Til's Apologetic, page 78, for anyone who's curious. The existence of God must be true for science to be possible. In fact, it was the Christian worldview that gave rise to modern science in the 1500s. The only worldview that can know that the future will be like the past is the Christian worldview. And all science is based on this principle of induction. Anyone who presupposes the uniformity of nature is presupposing the God of the Bible because he, he is the one, the sovereign one, who controls all things. If we don't start our reasoning with the Christ who holds all things together, we can't prove anything. In our defense of the faith with the unbeliever, when they bring up things like universal laws of logic, uniformity of nature, or morality, we as Christ's ambassadors must ask them, what would have to be true for anything that you are saying to make sense? You must understand that the atheist is a materialist. They claim to believe that all that exists is matter. It is the philosophical doctrine that nothing exists except matter and its movements and modification. Therefore, when the atheist appeals to logic and claims that the Christianity is illogical or that the Christian is illogical, you can point out that he is appealing to immaterial realities. When the atheist claims the Bible is full of contradictions, he is appealing to an immaterial law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, which states that contradictory propositions cannot be true in the same sense and at the same time. The two propositions, P is the case and P is not the case, are mutually exclusive. They can't both be true. We cannot taste, smell, or see this law of logic. Therefore, the unbeliever borrows from the Christian worldview in order to attack it. He professes to believe that all that exists is the material world, but he uses immaterial concepts in his reasoning all the time. This is because he knows God but hates him. Immaterial laws of logic are found in Christ because it is in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. It is in Christ that we can have principles such as justice and morality because God's word is the objective standard for ethics that we can stand upon. We look to God's law and not man's law, which is in constant flux. When the unbeliever claims that secular scientists have proved something with an experiment, they have no justification for saying that the same experiment will work the same way tomorrow, let alone five seconds from now. Once they have claimed to prove something, they have to do it again every second because they don't know that the future will be like the past. But they presuppose it 
because they know the true and living God, but they hold down the truth of God in unrighteousness. We all have a sense of deity within us, an immediate knowledge of God. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So no one has any excuse for saying they don't know God. The unbeliever is unapologetus, without an apologetic. He is without a defense for saying he doesn't know God. Moving on to verse 18, it says, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in order that in all things he might be preeminent. Now I want to focus on this phrase, firstborn of the dead, and take some time to explain that Christ is the firstfruits of our resurrection. Because Christ has died and risen again, we have hope that we too will join him in a resurrection like his. Philippians 3, 20-21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Take that full preterism. God has a telos, which means he has an end goal in his plan of redemption to bring about a new heavens and a new earth, where he will abolish death forever. For all who trust in Christ, he will resurrect us from the grave, and there will be no more pain, no more sin, no more disease, and he will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, in order that everyone who looks to the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. On the last day of history, there will be the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. The, righteous, the unrighteous will go off into eternal punishment, and the righteous will have eternal life. And there we will always be with the Lord. You'll notice that Christ has first place in everything. As Bonson says, this includes the world of thought. Van Til, expounding on the preeminent Christ, says, It is Christ as God who speaks in the Bible. Therefore, the Bible does not appeal to human reason as ultimate in order to justify what it says. It comes to the human being with absolute authority. Its claim is that human reason, reason must itself be taken in the sense in which Scripture takes it, namely, as created by God, and is therefore properly subject to the authority of God. The two systems, that of the non-Christian and that of the Christian, differ because of the fact that their basic assumptions or presuppositions differ. On the non-Christian basis, man is assumed to be the final reference point in prediction. The reform method begins, frankly, from above. It would presuppose God, but in presupposing God, it cannot place itself at any point on a neutral basis with the non-Christian. Believers themselves have not chosen the Christian position because they were wiser than others, but they have what they have, they have by grace alone. But this fact does not mean that they must accept the problematics of fallen man as right, or even as probably or possibly right, for the essence of the idea of Scripture is that it alone is the criterion of truth. And that's from Van Til's A Christian Theory of Knowledge. Christ must be first in our thinking. He must be first in our apologetic, first in our marriage, first in all of our relationships, and first in all of life. Verse 19 because in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. The word for deity is not found in the Greek text of verse 19. However, the concept of fullness implies the full measure of deity. And Colossians 2.9 is more explicit, although I would contend that the same truth is taught in both passages. Colossians 2.9 says, Because in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The totality of divine attributes and power are found in Christ. 
Moving on to verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through the blood of the cro- his cross, whether the things on earth or whether the things in the heavens. Jesus Christ is progressively working now to reconcile all things to himself. The blood of the cross is a purchase victory that makes all things new. This is a great text to deal with the fact that we are enemies of God outside of Christ. The concept of reconciliation presupposes that we are not right with God prior to that reconciliation. We go from being at enmity with God to having peace with God. This concept is further established and illustrated in Romans 1 through 11. We won't have time to read that today, but that text teaches us that after having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This text also clearly lays out that we were enemies who have now been reconciled by the death of the Son. When sin entered into the world, it ruined our communion with God. Isaiah 59 tells us our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God so that he does not hear. But because of the work of Christ, that separation is now bridged by the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. This text demonstrates the progressive aspect of Christ's work on the cross, reconciling all things to himself. When John the Baptist saw Christ, he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. Now the phrase taking away is a continuous action in the Koine Greek. So the active obedience of Christ is progressively making all things new. It is an action that is working even now to take away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Christ has fulfilled this promise of bringing peace to mankind by his own blood. Jesus Christ is the source and definition of all peace because he himself is our peace. And the church must go out into the world to tell others that if they don't have peace with the Prince of Peace, there is no peace, only alienation and separation from God. But we as the people of God want others to have hope and be right with God. Christ is working as the ruler of the kings of the earth to make all things new through his blood. When Christ died, he rose again on the third day and ascended, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. His enemies are his footstool. By the reign of King Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, enemies of God can receive peace. There is no sin that is worth tossing up everlasting life with your Creator. If there is any sin in your life that has a hold on you, bring it to the preeminent Christ. If anyone sitting here is not right with God, ask yourself, what sin is preventing me from coming to the God that I know? If you are right with God, share with others the preeminent Christ who has come to make peace with his enemies by the blood of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you sent your son so that we can have true peace, God. There's so many false understandings of peace in this world. I pray that we could be a light to those who are in darkness and that we could proclaim Christ who is the light of the world, exalting him because he is worthy to be proclaimed. He's worthy to be exalted. You are kind and merciful towards us, God. And I do pray that if anyone doesn't know you, that you would extend mercy and grace to them now, that they would look to the cross. And whenever you come back, you will raise us up from the grave. And there we will always be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.